When I got Charlie Warzel on the line, I had a simple question for him. What weather apps do you have on your phone? Charlie's answer was a little less simple. So I used to be a dark sky loyalist uh, before the purge, uh, before they uh, kind of shuttered it and folded it into uh, Apple weather. I've since started using Apple weather, which I don't like. And recently through recommendations, I've been like toying around with a couple of different weather apps. One is called Carrot and one is called Windy.app. Not to be confused with Windy, which is another app. There are um, over 10,000 weather apps in the Android and iOS app stores, making all this very confusing. So that's a total of four, at least four that he currently uses. I mean, I have like a whole graveyard of old weather apps that I have like discarded over the years. Discarded because weather apps kind of suck. Charlie writes for The Atlantic and recently wrote a story about these apps and where they fit in our lives. Most of us don't have a favorite TV meteorologist anymore. We roll out of bed and look at our phones, depending on that app, for guidance. If a weather app predicts the weather for you and gets it wrong and leaves you stranded somewhere or in a really bad situation, you know, that can feel a little bit like betrayal, especially if you paid money for the app or something like that. Um, And... I just think it's one of those pieces of technology that we don't think about, but that is really intimate. Which is why when they fail, and they often do, we feel confused, almost betrayed. After all, we chose this weather app out of all the others, checked it days in advance, trusted it with our plans, maybe down to the hour. And the prediction it made led us astray, maybe left us soaking wet. And there's this like strange guilt with this idea, at least for me, of like living in an era of like information abundance and also feeling like I I almost want the scarcity. Like the information is not actually very helpful for me. It is either overwhelming or I don't know how to make use of it in the right way. And I think that that is sort of the core of what's happening with a lot of things in modern life, but especially with weather apps. And so today on the show, We're going to explain why this happens, why professional meteorologists call these things crap apps. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. To be completely honest, I was actually a little nervous to ask Daniel Swain about weather apps. Daniel is a serious climate scientist at UCLA. He studies the intersection of global warming and extreme weather. And so I sort of wondered if it was silly to bring this up to him. But it turns out he thinks about weather apps a lot. These weather apps that exist on people's smartphones these days are actually the primary way that many people 
in North America and Europe interact with modern weather forecasts. In fact, in some cases, and probably in many cases, it's the only way uh, because people don't watch uh, local TV news as much anymore or pick up physical newspapers uh, with the day's forecast on it. So unless you're unusually attuned to the weather, it's quite likely that's that's your primary source of weather information in this era. Do people ask you about them? All the time. And the question is usually, uh, why why are they so bad? And <laughs> and my answer initially is usually, well, I agree with you that the apps are bad, but the underlying science is actually a lot better than the apps might make you think. Okay, well, let's let's un- unpack that a little bit. Um, so if I were to come up and say, why are they so bad? Like, where does your explanation start? Well, one is that these these apps almost across the board, lack context. Uh, What exactly is it that is being predicted by these apps uh, in any given place or at any given time? And I think a lot of folks assume that they know what these apps are trying to tell them, uh, but often what they're actually telling you is quite different from what it looks like they're telling you. And I'll give a specific example of this. One thing that people really notice is how radically the forecast sometimes changes from one hour to the next when you look at the app. So if you're looking at the forecast for four or five days from now, for example, you might check in the morning when you get up, you know, it might be a relatively warm and clear forecast. And then six hours later, you check it at lunch or something. uh, And and the forecast for five days from now is now uh, cold and rainy or cold and snowy. And you might say, how the heck did it change that much in six hours? You know, this we can't really rely on anything these days. But the reality is the actual prediction uh, didn't change that much in six hours. And what actually happened is that this app in, in this example is only looking at one of very many uh, realizations, we call them, across an ensemble of weather model predictions for that same period. The realization you are seeing is one possible outcome of a variable, one outcome of a model that gets run every six hours. But weather is more complex. It's a broader envelope of outcomes, which you're probably not seeing in your app. But if you look at the whole envelope, the full ensemble, the the full distribution of possible weather features, if you will, it's very likely that it didn't change very much if you look at the average across all of those realizations, all of those ensemble members over that six-hour period. So in other words, the app is inadvisedly picking only one member and giving you a prediction that's uncorrected by human forecasting expertise, that's not statistically a rigorous way of, of, of assessing things, and it's giving you a correct assessment of what one member says from one realization to the next, but not a contextually meaningful view of how much the actual likely future outcome has changed over that six-hour period. So it's literally true, but contextually uh, missing the point. To get the point, to get an accurate forecast, you need a remarkable amount of information. And even then, it's hard to be perfect. We don't know exactly what the world's atmosphere looks like in this moment right now. So imagine you were to push go on one of these mathematical weather models from right now. Well, obviously, 
most folks know that when you when you run a prediction, you need some sense of what the initial conditions are. What what's your starting point essentially that you're predicting from? But we don't know that initial starting point precisely. There's actually quite a bit of uncertainty because you can imagine that weather models need to know everything about the entire vertical 3D structure of the atmosphere over the whole world uh, to make multi-day weather predictions. So you need to know uh, what the wind speeds are uh, 500 feet off of the ocean and the remote South Pacific, potentially, for example, along with everywhere else. And we don't we don't have that information precisely. We can estimate it within certain reasonable bounds of uncertainty using observations and satellites and interpolations. But as you'd expect, all of those are imprecise. And so if you get it wrong, and there's a 100% chance that we get it wrong 100% of the time, uh, <laughs> then you're going to get a forecast that is imperfect. The way to make these forecasts better is to use ensembles, to run the weather model dozens of times with slightly different conditions. The more times you run it, the more accurate your forecast will be. So you feed the model over and over again, slightly different sets of initial conditions, all of which are plausible, given that we don't know exactly what the real world is. You run it forward and you get 20, 30, 40 different possible plausible futures uh, in terms of what might happen to the weather in three to five days. And because of that, you know, any individual member of that ensemble might do something weird if those initial conditions, uh, I'll, you know, produce some, some weird outcome. But the most, you know, the most realistic way to interpret these ensembles is to look at all of the members collectively and look at trends and patterns across all of them rather than focusing on any one individual member. And the challenge is a lot of these weather apps are just picking one and, and sort of uh, seeing a, a, a tree and uh, missing the forest, if you will. Do any apps look at the forest? I think some do, but one challenge, and this is an additional uh, big problem, is that where the data is coming from and how these forecasts are generated in these private proprietary weather apps is very opaque. Honestly, hmm. uh, in the lead up to this interview, I actually tried to look at the sourcing for some of the most popular weather apps, and they claim to be transparent, but from a scientific perspective, I actually have no idea how these apps are actually assimilating the data. They might say that it comes from, you know, the European Center for Medium Range Forecasting or the National Weather Service in the United States, but there's a lot of different kinds of data that you could be using and processing it in very different ways, even from those given sources. And so honestly, it's hard to know which of these apps uh, do a better job because it, it, it frankly just isn't very easy to figure out how these apps are operating. Well, this is such a sort of confounding aspect of technology because I think as a society, we have sort of put our faith in these, you know, microcomputers we carry around in our hands. Like, well, it has numbers, therefore it must know the truth. But listening to you, it's very clear that actually human skill in differentiating between these spans of probability and also interpreting them might be a better predictor of telling me what to wear in the morning? Well, let's just put it this way. Um, I know this is true for me personally, and it's true for almost all of the folks in the, the weather world who I, who I know work in this field, either academically or professionally. Uh, you know, our, our typical go-to in the United States is the, directly the National Weather Service, weather.gov. 
precisely for this reason, because the National Weather Service in the United States is, is actually a fairly large organization and it's decentralized. There are local weather forecast offices with real human meteorologists living in a particular part of the country uh, that specialize in predicting the weather for that region. And they know, uh, in some cases, all of the, the local microclimates, the quirks of weather in your area, including understanding the kinds of problems that existing numerical weather models might have that are regionally specific or conditionally hmm. present. And so all of that human knowledge is actually quite substantial in producing what I think are, are much more nuanced and, and better forecasts than just looking at the, the raw model output, which is what a lot of these apps are, are, are doing. And so in this process, you know, this human knowledge, it's, it's the kind of thing that a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning folks are, are you know, really trying to, to get these generative AI models that are, that are becoming so popular and these other sorts of self-learning techniques to assimilate. But we're, we have not gotten there yet. We just don't have numerical tools uh, that replace the, the the human touch in this context. And we're so far from it that I don't think that that's, you know, that's not immediately on the horizon for all the promise of AI, including in meteorology in other respects. I think that, you know, the fact that we really do need domain-specific knowledge to contextualize these huge arrays of, of raw numbers that are thrown at us, you know, from, from predictive models like weather models that I think that human meteorologists probably aren't going to be out of a job anytime soon. When we come back, please don't throw out the forecaster with the bathwater or the app. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thinking about what you do, which is, you know, looking at this intersection between climate change and extreme weather, I wonder if there's something even more immediate about kind of understanding why people need reliable weather and climate-related information that they can make decisions upon. Like, it, it seems particularly a tough problem in what you do if you cannot look at the thing in your hand and say, this is how bad the storm is going to be in my neighborhood today. I think it's a huge challenge. And I think you're right. There is this assumption that because we have this powerful computer in our pocket uh, that can pull up seemingly any kind of information on the fly almost instantaneously, that 
the basic day-to-day information that's delivered to us, like a weather forecast, must be correct. Uh, and I think that, that that sort of lends folks, in some cases, a bit of a false sense of security. And one example might be, uh, you know, if you just look at the icon in your weather app and you're in the central United States during tornado season, uh, depending on how the app interprets the forecast, there might only be a 20 or 30 percent chance of, of isolated thunderstorms that day. And so the app might give you essentially a warm and partly cloudy icon. Maybe there's a 20 or 30 percent little uh, mentioned in the corner. But the reality is, is that, you know, if you are under one of those 20 or 30% uh, area covered by thunderstorms, they might be really violent storms. There might be tornadoes. And so the, the, the single icon, it, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a science communication choice. Do you emphasize the low, but, but, but actually quite consequential risk of severe weather in this kind of forecast, or do you emphasize what the weather is going to be like most of the time that day, which is probably warm and partly cloudy until the, the isolated tornadic thunderstorms arrive. This example helps you see why this is a real problem with human stakes. Because sure, it's mildly annoying if my app tells me it's a few degrees warmer than it actually is. But it's downright dangerous if it's not warning someone else about tornadoes. And as climate change creates more extreme weather, it becomes even more important for people to be armed with an accurate forecast. We're seeing in, 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 in many parts of the world that we are seeing more extreme heat waves and more extreme downpours in a warming climate. Uh, and you know, more and more people are experiencing conditions that are in some in some cases outside of certainly outside their realm of of personal experience and increasingly also outside the realm of historical experience. And so I think the importance of properly communicating weather and particularly extreme weather in a climate change context is only becoming more important. And so, you know, we have this this simultaneous, reality of of unprecedented instantaneous uh, potential access to information but the reality for a lot of folks is that you know the context of that information has perhaps gotten worse because in the past perhaps you might have tuned into your local uh, morning news station and there yeah. would have been an on-air meteorologist who who actually did some of that interpolating for you Whereas now, increasingly, you're just sort of getting the raw, unfiltered version without, you know, without any framing. Is there a better way to do this? Can you envision, you know, a, a weather app that doesn't lead people to this this kind of overwhelm of data? Honestly, I haven't seen it yet. And it's one of the reasons why I personally tend not to use weather apps as as a professional uh, <laughs> atmospheric scientist. Uh, I, there's a few exceptions. I, I do think there's a couple that are probably somewhat better than others. But I think in general, it's a difficult problem because it is both a science problem, uh, a science communication problem, and sort of a technology uh, user interface problem. And I'm not sure that we have great solutions for any of those three things in this context yet. I think uh, if if someone does figure it out, they're going to produce an incredibly popular product. I, I will say that. So it's not like it's an impossible task. But I think it's important to have domain experts on board because a lot of the folks producing 
weather apps don't necessarily have a background in atmospheric science or meteorology. It might be folks, you know, uh, from the tech sector or people who are, you know, used to packaging products who might miss a lot of details. Again, that's not universally true, but I think the challenge is there is so much domain knowledge among folks who've been doing this for a long time. And that just doesn't make it into the current system. So I, I, I think there's definitely space for it, uh, but I just don't know exactly um, how, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm not an expert on, on user interfaces. And so I would be eager to see uh, some good ideas on how to move this forward, but so far I haven't seen it yet. But still at this point, you're going weather.gov in the morning. Personally, if I have to make a recommendation and you're in the United States, I think that's that's genuinely uh, genuinely your best bet. One thing that worries Daniel is the possibility that your weather app gets it wrong and leaves you caught in the rain. And you think all meteorology is bad, that it's just a game of chance. But in reality, modern meteorology is more accurate than ever. There's just been steady and substantive improvement in weather forecasts over the past few decades. And yet I think the public perception is that weather forecasts have gotten worse. And it's not because that the underlying weather models have gotten worse. They've gotten better. I mean, objectively, you know, meteorologists measure this stuff all the time and benchmark things and they continue to improve. But it's that the information delivery has gotten worse uh, or that people are also just more aware of the failures. And so, of course, as usual, people notice failures more often than you notice the, the mundane successes, which is what happens most of the time. Uh, but nevertheless, I really do think that there has been this divergence in the public sense of how uh, advanced the field of meteorology actually is versus how advanced it appears to be uh, through this interface of smartphone weather apps, which you know, a lot of folks in the industry still joke um, or, or maybe not so jokingly refer to as the crap apps. Um, that is a not uncommon way to describe a lot of a lot of the way that most people receive their weather information today. Daniel Swain, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. Daniel Swain is a climate scientist with UCLA, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and the Nature Conservancy. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Shannon Palace. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like what we are doing here, the best way to support us is to become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.